0: Well the first word that we spoke at the beginning of the year was the word grace and I want to keep that theme going this morning. I want to keep us focused on the grace of God that's available for all people and we talked about that and uh, go back and listen to the teaching from Sunday, the first Sunday in the year to pick up on that. But one of the things I introduced, I, I thought it was old. Some of the things that um, I think are old and everybody knows, I'm discovering that it's just me that's old and not everybody knows them. And, um, so, and one of the things was that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. How many of that, that was a new sort of acronym for you a couple of weeks ago. Lots of hands are going up across the room. Uh, that's, a, that's a great way to think about what grace is and to summarize it. It is, I receive God's riches because Christ has paid for them. And it's a gift to me in that way. And I gave you this really long sentence and I'll give it to you again in case you didn't memorize it the first time. You ready? Give you a shot at this grace gives me faith to trust that the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ atones for all my rebellion cancels the entire debt I owe God and restores me to be a child of God with an eternal home and a glorious inheritance it's a long sentence isn't it but I tell you what it's not long compared to Ephesians 1 Ephesians 1 is one of the longest sentences in the entire New Testament and uh In your Bible, it has full stops, but when you read it in the original Greek, which I'm sure not many of you have done, um, I was able to do that a number of years ago. I haven't kept up my ancient Greek reading, so I can't do it anymore. But grace, if we summarise it, is this reality of me receiving God's riches at Christ's expense. And Grace does four things in our lives, and Paul and Peter in their New Testament letters, teach us that God's grace saves us, it transforms us, it motivates us and it rewards us. it saves us, it transforms us, it motivates us and rewards us and we spent quite a bit of time at the beginning of the month looking at what it means to be saved this morning I want to focus on God's grace in Ephesians one now what i 've done is i 've created two columns, and in, in one column i 've put what God has done, and in the second column i 've put our responses to god 's action and I want you to notice them if we just really we're going to go through them very quickly. look at where 's the weight of this? If you look at where 's the weight of who's doing the heavy lifting it 's clearly god isn 't it? And that's it's so important to remember. we are always He's always the initiator. He's doing the heavy lifting. And we are joined into him through just trust and submission. So let's have a look at this, what God does. God unites us with Christ. I want to just pause for a minute before I go any further than that. Just to firstly say, how many of you have, have been to Ephesus or know anything of the history of Ephesus and the context in which Paul's writing? Who'd be able to get up and say yep Ephesus was a thriving metropolis it was like the New York City of the Greek ancient world at the time it was home to the temple of Artemis or Diana as she was called there was a thriving silversmith there running a very successful business uh, selling little silver things to people of the goddess Artemis or Diana as she was known by by some so into that thriving metropolis comes a bloke called Paul with a message that shifts things. And it causes a great uproar, actually. You can read about it in the book of Acts, and particularly Acts chapter 19. It ends up being a, causing a riot. The riot is because people are becoming followers of Jesus, no longer buying these little... Icons, these, these things at the silver system, are. so Demetrius, Demetrius is losing money, his business is going under. And so he does what all good businessmen do: create a panic, call a meeting, start shouting and yelling, create a riot, a distraction, and get rid of these Christians out of the place. Ah, oh, we live in great and glorious times, everybody. The script doesn't really change much. So to that little group of people in the city of Ephesus that have become followers of Jesus through the preaching of Paul, Paul, got, Paul puts this letter together and, and writes to them. So this is what God does. God unites us with Christ. It's that thing of we become joined to Christ. God loved us. I love these these uh, action these verbs that Paul uses. God chose us. God adopted us. God makes us holy. God brings us to himself. And he does it with great pleasure. I just want to stop there and say, please, if you have never slowly read Ephesians 1 and as like a degustation menu that lasts for days, do it. Take a day to contemplate each of these phrases that Paul's using because each of them is so packed and pregnant with meaning. Take this thing of what God has done and take this thing of, and this gave him great pleasure. God has not reluctantly embraced you into his family. Not going, well, I guess I better let her in. You know, it's what I do in my grace. It's like, no, God chose you. God adopted you. And it gave him great pleasure. And he did all this before he formed the world, Paul Paul goes on. There's such a richness here. And he brings us to himself and he purchases our freedom. And he forgives us all our sin. And he showers his kindness on us. And he gives us wisdom and understanding. And he reveals his plan. He doesn't keep it a secret. He's revealed his plan, what he's doing. That's great. And he gives us an inheritance. And he gives us the confidence that he will achieve his plan. No one will thwart his plan. And he unites Jews and Gentiles into Christ. The the barriers of division, of ethnic division and socioeconomic division, every other division is broken down in Christ. Paul talks about this. And he marks us. He seals us. There's often a bit of chatter about the mark of the beast. And people get all, some of the Christians get all thingy about that. Because we forget that God marks his people. He seals us. That we belong to him. Paul talks about it here in Ephesians. He's also talking about it in Revelation. He's talking about it in other places. We're sealed, we're marked, we belong to Him. He gives us His Spirit as that guarantee that we are His and we will receive all that He wants us to receive. So that's what God does. And so what's our response to that? Well, our response sometimes is, well, well, I better run off and prove that I'm good enough to have earned all that and received all that. I better show good, God what a good Christian I am. better convince the church I'm a good Christian. I'm doing the right thing. Paul doesn't say we should do any of that. Yet he gets to that in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of his letters in Ephesians. But first of all, he says, your first response is this. You do two things. You praise God. You glorify him, which means you love and obey him. I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready, for uh, some random reason, I was thinking, <laughs> what, would I, what will I say to God when I see him face to face? What's the first thing I think I'll say to God? And I often, I've asked people this question before. Before, uh, you know, I've talk, thought about myself. But often people think, well, God, I'm going, to, I'm going to, when I see God, I'm going to ask him, why this, why that, why this and the other thing? Why, why do you do this? And why did this happen to me? And why did this happen on the planet? Blah, blah, all these kind of things. I don't, I don't think like that. I think the first thing, if I think of, if anything comes out of my mouth, it will be worship. It will be thank you. Thank you. You provided a path for me to be restored to you. The path was Jesus, and the promise is Jesus, and here I am standing before Jesus and worshipping Him. We've stood in this room this morning and worshipped and experienced the presence of Jesus, but one day we'll see Him face to face. And so many of the things that we are concerned about right now will disappear because they will not matter in the light of His glory and grace. But how much we can live today with a grounded reality that God's plan, as He talks about it, if you've got your Bibles, look at look at Ephesians chapter one and verse thirteen. Oh, sorry, it's verse ten. God's plan, and this is His plan: at the right time, He'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. This is the promise. Paul wrote that a couple of thousand years ago to a small group of people who were, who were not a political entity or, or in any way the majority in the city of Ephesus. To speak to them, to say, you don't need to be afraid. The Roman emperor won't win. The Roman empire does not win. God wins. God, God is working his plan. To bring everything under the leadership of Jesus. Psalm 2 is is the greatest revelation of this. And people conspire and they want to overthrow God and they they come up with all these schemes and strategies and wicked schemes and wicked people want to overthrow God. And what does Psalm 2 tell us that God is doing? Yeah, he's laughing. He he just laughs. Because it's a non-issue. People, we want to live with that reality. Regardless of the pressures that are on us right now, it is that he wins. He brings everything together. He works things together for his good. So coming back to the grace, again... The, let me paraphrase Pastor Tim Keller. The essence of grace is that God sent his son to save us by grace and adopt us into his family. That's it. And what did we contribute to this? What did we contribute to this? Nothing. That's the answer. What did God contribute? Everything. Correct answer. And because of that grace, we want to, in our gratitude, our heart overflows in gratitude, and this is where grace motivates us because We we are motivated by gratitude. We want to resemble our Father. We want the family likeness. We want the family resemblance. We want to look like our Savior, and we want to please our Father. And so the basic principle then is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We are not to live as if we belong to ourselves ourselves which means several things. It means, first of all, we are to give up trying to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong. We are to determine and rely wholly on the Word of God. And we're to give up the principle that we typically live by in our day-to-day lives of putting ourselves first, and instead we always put what pleases God first and what it means to love our neighbour. That means there's no part of our lives that is immune from self-giving. You, as a believer in Jesus, there's no part of our life, my life or your life, that's immune from self-giving love because that's the family likeness that we've been brought into. That is what the Father has done. Self-giving love, self-sacrificing love. This is our call. This is the lifestyle that we're called to. It is counter-cultural. To the most of the body of Christ today, who are trying to live their best life, rather than lose their life for Christ and the gospel, as Jesus said. We lose our life to gain his life. And so, as John Calvin said, we are not our own. Let us therefore... Not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. Let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. We are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. This is what we are called to be as followers of Jesus. As Jesus was submitted to the Father, like, loving his life and laying it down, we are called to that lifestyle. And it's for this reason that I gave you that handout this morning, and please pull it out right now. It's the hand, What is our only hope in life and death? I invite you to read this together. This is an excerpt from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm sure almost none of you are familiar with it although some of you may have read it. Written at a very tumultuous time in the 16th century. Lots of conflict within the church in Europe. They're trying to bring disparate groups of people it was into the, the era of the, the Refo- what we call the Reformation and things are uplifting and all sorts of things are popping up and people are trying to work out new things. And this is written for two things, to try to bring these disparate groups together who all love Jesus, but they're actually fighting one another. And it's also written so that they would disciple new believers and disciple the next generation. And the way that the catechism is, is constructed, for those of you who are not familiar with it, there's the, there's the teacher who asks the question... And you train the children, the new believers, the next generation, to uh, the answer to the question. Making sense? So that's why it's written as a Q&A. So I'm just explaining how this all works. And I've just given you just a little excerpt, but this is the big, very beginning of how it all begins. Will you read it with me? What is your only comfort in life and in death? In death. In death Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And the second question is, What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Paul said in Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honour the Lord. And if we die, it's to honour the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. This is what we're anchored in. This so is what we have to, have to keep reminding ourselves of, have to keep telling ourselves of in this period where, where so much is being shaken around about us and fear is rampant our, in our lives and in the wider community. We are the ones who ought to have an anchor because we understand our lives are in his hands. Our lives belong to him. His purposes will be achieved. The wicked people have been scheming. Demonic principalities have been scheming. From Genesis 3. They keep going all the way through Genesis, all the way through, all the way to the book of Revelation where everything climaxes and who wins? Who's the victorious one? Who's the one coming back on a white horse? He is the one. He's the victorious one. We are not surprised that people are trying to overthrow things. We aren't surprised by that. The question is, how do we carry our hearts in that? We say and the and the answer is we carry our hearts with confidence. God's going to achieve his plan and purpose to bring everything in heaven under the rulership of his son. And so what do we do while all this is going on around us? We continue to cultivate loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We continue to love our neighbor as ourselves. We continue to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and speak evil against us. We continue to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Not the internet, not YouTube, not any other platform, but this eternal word and platform. We immerse ourselves in this story so that we know him and his purposes and what's happened in the past and what's coming in the future. So we are standing secure. In him. Amen. We stand because of his grace, what God has done, what he's going to do in Christ, and we understand our role is to continue to lay our lives down for Christ and to make disciples. And nothing's stopping us doing any of that. Amen.